How y'all doing? Uh, welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement, and hopefully one day a true proletarian revolution. Um, but until we get there, thank you for stopping by. I am your host, Josh, and this is In Defense of Liberation. <coughs> Excuse me. Um... If this is your first time stopping by, I really do appreciate you uh, swinging on over. A few things. First and foremost, I am driving. There will probably be some weird background noise at some point. Um, I apologize. Kind of, it is what it is. Uh, Yeah. Second thing, you just kind of heard it. Um, I am still getting over a head cold. So, my voice is a little weak. I got a nice little gross cough. Uh, so if that's going to gross anybody out or I don't know, it just, just a heads up, just a heads up. Um, also, so you don't think I have like COVID. Um, thankfully I don't. Um, me and my partner were quite sick. So we went and got tested for strep because that's what we thought we had. We didn't have strep. So they were like, uh, and we were like, yeah, we probably should. So we got tested for COVID, even though we have our vaccines, because a lot of folks don't know this. Your vaccine is not going to outright stop you from being, you know, enabled to, uh, um, what are the words I want to use here? Sorry. Um, you know, your vaccine isn't a force field. Um, people still get sick. People still get COVID. People can still pass that shit on. It's a lot less likely because of now your abilities known or your body's now known ability uh, to fight off the virus um, through antibodies. That's what a vaccine does. It, it creates a um, basically a memory bank in your uh, your body. Uh, where it stores all the different antibodies that you need to fight off different things. You know, colds are, cold antibodies are over here. Flu antibodies are over there. Um, and when something, you know, hits that point where they got to send in the, the antibodies to go knock that shit out, as soon as your body is adept at recognizing that and, and you know, noticing that, you have a much, 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 much less... Uh, likely chance to not only contract a virus or a a disease or whatever, but also to pass it on. Um, However, this is never, uh, whether it's COVID, whether it's the flu, whether it's whatever, it is never a 100% guarantee. So, you know, anyone who is still out there, um, you know, thinking that, Oh, no, I got the shot. Let me just go ahead and just try to do life how we were doing it two years ago. Um, Yeah, please don't. Um, I know we want to get out. It's summertime. We want to go see our friends and stuff like that. And you can go see your friends, you know, folks that are vaccines, you know, just like, you know, be careful. Don't don't be going to highly crowded places with a lot of people with their masks off because a majority of them probably haven't gotten their vaccine. (sighs) you know, don't, don't put yourself and others at danger regardless. Um, because as we know, this, this vaccine, uh, or I should say this virus is, is no joke, no matter how much people want to make it a joke. Um, I think something like 7 million people plus all over the world have died. Um, that's no joke. And that's in a year and a half of this virus being, you know, known. Um, so, yeah, I think that a lot of people are feeding into Western propaganda that the virus is over. I think a lot of people are feeding into this idea that now that I have my vaccine, I don't have to care about the virus anymore. Um, and that's just plainly not true. Uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. Just a random little point I wanted to make. Um, what I want to talk about today is twofold. So first and foremost... I want to kind of talk about why we uh, we advocate for this need for socialism. You know, why why do we feel that socialism is the ticket? And connected to that, I want to discuss in brief um, kind of just this idea of ideology um, and 
I want to connect it a little bit to the residential schools where they keep finding hundreds of bodies of young indigenous children who, if you know the story and the history of residential schools, um, basically what they were, you had you had a school, right, that would be built in an area near where indigenous people lived by settlers, by colonialists, by an incoming occupying army. Um, they would set up these schools and they would do their best to limit any resources going to the indigenous folks. They would straight up go in and, you know, mobs would murder, uh, rape, uh, they burned down villages, they, they, and they'd, ki- they'd kidnap children. And eventually, there was this theory developed that w- it was described as, quote, kill the Indian, excuse my language, this is the, you know, this phrase, kill the Indian, save the man. Um, and so there became this wide practice, which, you know, always kind of existed in this settler society of kidnapping women and children. However, now more than ever, it was more than just simply kidnapping them as slaves. It was more than kidnapping them for sex uh, or to be sold for sex. Um, It was kidnapping them now um, to develop them into white people, uh, or that was the goal. Um, so what they would do is they would kidnap these children and they would bring them to these residential schools where they'd cut their hair so they all look the same, put them in nice little white settler church clothes. They'd make them speak English and beat them and bully them. Well, not even, like, I guess probably bully them, but there was more than enough physical and sexual violence there that nobody needed to necessarily hear words uh, to, to feel inclined to, to listen to these folks. And of course, a lot of these schools were set up by evangelical Christians. No one's surprised there. Um, and the goal, like I said, was to eliminate quote, the savagery as they once referred to it as of indigenous peoples by, from the early age of childhood, you know, basically training them to be a white person and now we see popping up all over the world especially in Canada what we call Canada right now um the big one was the uh Ryerson school uh where they found I believe that was the proper the right one where they found 215 bodies um but now schools all over the area are going through and using the same technology um, that these these folks were able to use to find those bodies and guys they keep finding hundreds hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children's bodies I, I can't even express to you what it feels like to be basically from the lineage of the people that did this shit like my parents huge puritan protestant christians i guarantee you somewhere down that line those motherfuckers were involved in this shit and you know i might be able to make the excuse that oh i was adopted not my family but at the same time to think that like folks who looked like me who walk like me, who talk like me, white settlers came into an, a land that was not their own. They massacred, and I mean massacred, genocided, like hundreds of millions of people over the years from the first, you know, uh, uh, contact with, with different settlers to today. The hundreds of millions of lives which have been taken, destroyed, it's incredible. And and I can't imagine that 
Anyone can look at this and separate it from the history of colonialism. There is no residential school without settler colonialism. There, there is a, a direct correlation between our history and our present. And there are many of us who choose to disclude that history and disconnect it from our present and more than anything refuse to learn about it so not to let it build us a better future Uh, and this is you know just one example one specific example of how my ancestors white people white settlers came into the United States as well as other places I mean that's that's just an improper analysis right there came onto Turtle Island came onto these lands called it the United States called it Canada called it Mexico and developed uh, a scientific process of genocide This is one part of that process. And I think that, you know, I'm definitely not the scholar to inform you on the many atrocities committed against our, you know, indigenous peoples here on this land. If you want to learn more, you should definitely check out the Red Nation. You should check out Decolonized Buffalo. You should check out Wode Podcast. You should check out... um, there's a lot of bands of Turtle Island. You should check out all these shows and listen to the voices of indigenous peoples. Listen to, you know, the traditions and the culture and the history of indigenous people. And something also amazing about, you know, what we now call indigenous culture or indigenous traditions. Because as Franz Fanon puts it, you know, you don't have indigeneity without invasion. You don't have native without occupation. So what we refer to as indigenous just means people, but it means the people who were here before other people came here and tried to kill them. Their culture and traditions here on this land should really, really give anyone a very clear understanding as to why and what a mess it is today that we find ourselves in, um, why it is that indigenous people have never stopped resisting. One very clear example that I always like to point to to show the you know incredible knowledge and understanding that indigenous people had long before any European or anyone else stepped foot over here is the California uh, um, controlled bushfires. Um, At one point in time, it was tradition. And not only tradition, I believe that it was even a ceremonial type event. Um, The uh, cyclical burning of you know, wood and and brush and and bushes in the West Coast. Um, Nowadays, we don't do that anymore. We don't really, really do too many controlled fires. And even when we do, we're not doing it in a traditional way that is, you know, studied and, 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 and known to not harm the surrounding environment uh it it's it's never done in a way that really keeps people safe um and because of the rarity and the, the way in which that we do uh controlled burns it's not enough and and mother earth has told us through the continuous you know wildfires that keep popping up on the west coast that my, you know, my people, my, you know, my lineage, my, my, my soul must be tended to 
by my caretakers. And, you know, indigenous people have taken care of the earth for thousands of years. And then colonialism connected to also capitalism, connected to also imperialism, have all come through and destroyed whatever resemblance of these traditions and these cultures and these practices could happen. It outlawed them. It exiled or killed people for committing them. It stole the land from the people so they could not even, you know, practice in these ways in the places where it it was sacred to do so. And so we see a direct development from colonialism into the period of time that we find ourselves in today. It's undeniable and it it really would be a fool's errand to try to disconnect again our history from our present. Here describing the difference between, you know, kind of like, you know, a very specific example and indigenous tradition and practice of, of, you know, controlled fires, we see a very, very clear contradiction between colonial and indigenous livelihood. And this is because built into colonialism is a very clear contradiction between what we call natives and invaders. Um, White European folks from the time that they started setting foot in this land had it in their mind that they were going to get their own. They were going to have their own land. They were going to have their own farm. They were going to be able to provide for themselves. And in a lot of cases, that that was the case, especially in the beginning of settlement. Uh, And eventually, you know, you have a development of a few different things uh, which kind of throw white folks down, down in the bottom of the barrel at some point. You know, you have the development of slavery as well as, you know, prior to uh, African chattel slavery. We had made many attempts to enslave indigenous people as well and in some cases had, you know, done so. And so you had a progression where no longer could white folks just work a job and make enough money or be even an, an indentured servant and make enough money to go off and get, you know, their 40 acres of land and a mule or whatever it is they were trying to get because now they were being undercut. You know, we're not going to give the jobs and we're not going to pay for the jobs uh, to white people. We're going to take those jobs and we're going to make those slave jobs and we're going to pay not a goddamn cent for it. And so you see this animosity that develops between, you know, the poor white people who you could possibly objectively say are struggling and might in some instances be able to connect with the struggles of black, brown, and indigenous people. But because of their, the very foundation of this country being racism, Colonialism is racism. Colonialism is here comes the Europeans to save us. That that's where the white race, the the racism, all this shit develops from. Right there. So you have built into what we now call American society racism. You can't escape it. It is a part of the country we live in. It is not some, you know, dirty stain. It is not a a birthmark. It's not even a bruise. It's the whole thing. The United States of America is a settler colonial state. This is not our land. We are a racist occupying army. That is it. That is what the United States of America is. And so to see the contradictions between this society and the societies that existed here beforehand... We have to take it to a different level and and ask, you know, why? 
And when we when we go and ask that, you know, it becomes difficult because you get caught up in, in different historical examples of, you know, well, here's one one, you know, uh, uh, mass defeat, which which might have led to this or here is, you know, one person who's teaching distinctly like we have to go kill indigenous people or you know here's one person that's saying like to the soldiers like make sure when you go in to steal the women and 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 rape the children and burn the rest of the village down but we can't be so simplistic as uh uh, borrowing from individuals and specific examples and laying blame in, in this way we have to understand how history develops we have to understand how ideology develops and we have to understand this idea of hegemony. So, if we look at the development of history, we know that it is a combination between multiple European states, uh, such as the Netherlands, England, France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, who went across the world, whether it was in what we now call America. Uh, whether it was in Latin America or South America, whether it was in Africa or Asia, colonialism has a very distinct connection to Europe. And the European ideology was and is, as we know today, that white is right, that European intellect highly overpowers the knowledge of these quote-unquote savages. And so, how how the fuck does this ideology convince motherfuckers like Christopher Columbus to go across the sea? You know, how does it convince all these different invading armies like Cortez's and, and multiple others to come over to whether it be North America, South America... Asia, Africa, or, you know, wherever, we cannot misinterpret why. If you look again at the historical development, you have the early ages of feudalism within these European states. And now there were groups of people who were were becoming rich as could be. You know, far before this, you you didn't really have this wealth so concentrated. You didn't really have individuals and groups of individuals being so collectively wealthy beyond, you know, any of our wildest dreams. And so there were other folks who weren't as wealthy who saw this shit and went, I want mines, like we were talking about earlier. And because the society is structured in such a way that it mirrors an environment of class struggle, meaning you had an oppressing group, the wealthy landlords, the the aristocracy and monarchy, the nobility and clergy, and then you had the bottom class, which far more than it ever has been and probably you know only until shit gets really bad as connected as it will ever be you had the middle class and the lower class the peasants and the 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 petty artisans and the you know day laborers and stuff like that all kind of amalgamated into one class But then eventually that middle class got a little bit of ego about itself and it said, you know what, we're not as gross and as filthy and as poor as these motherfuckers. And sure, we might not be as rich as these other people, but we sure as hell can do something about that. So in a lot of cases, you know, you see these middle class people go to the monarchy, go to the clergy and say, listen, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to find us some money. And if I find us some money, you're going to give me some. And I'm going to be as wealthy as you. But I'll give you most of what I get. You just got to pay for me to get there. And this is the quote-unquote age of exploration where colonialism really became cemented as a practice. Where feudalism 
was no longer just landlords and serfs, but now, or, or absolutism, having kings and, 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 you know, subjects, or even in some cases having slave owners and slaves. It was no longer relegated to a single geographic location. You were no, no longer required to explicitly exploit the people and the resources found within your own nation. You were now probably more willing to seek out those resources, seek out that labor, and seek out that control outside of your geographic location. I mean, this could be for a lot of reasons. We know explicitly that it was for two, which was, you know, a further expansion of wealth. Um, But also, it was even a safety measure. Because during this time, you know, you got to figure that there were enough serfs and and slaves and, and middle class people who had revolts, who had rebellions, who you know, acted against different groups of uh, the upper class, where the upper class had come to a decision that, hey, these, these motherfuckers are, are, are getting some ideas. Let's, let's, go ahead and, let's go ahead and make them a little bit more wealthy and hurt these people over here so that nobody over here can see that, so nobody's paying attention. This ideology, of course, never gets broken. This ideology of wealth, this ideology of power, and this ideology of class society really cements itself all throughout the history of human development. And now ideology is one of those things that it's, it's like an amalgamous abstract being, but we can see it and we can, we can hear it and we can feel it, you know ideology is when you talk to a Christian uh, who might be one of those like what you might call I guess an extremist but not someone who's like necessarily violent like my grandma who we can't talk about someone's struggle we can't talk about anything without her talking about God and how he's gonna fix it Um, ideology is also you know oh, the U.S. military is across the world fighting for freedom and democracy. But ideology doesn't come from nowhere. Neither do ideas. Um, Marx and Engels and many, many others since them have made it quite clear that ideas come from the environment we find ourselves in. Ideas do not spontaneously drift into our brain and appear in some stroke of genius. The way that ideas appear are we are born into a given environment. That environment is structured in a certain way. It has certain elements about it. And because of that, we see this. We live in it. We endure it. And we internalize it. When you live in a white supremacist society as a white person, whether you are quote-unquote racist or not, you are more likely to carry racist ideology, racist prejudices, because you live in a racist society. If you live in a society where capitalism has been in control for over 250 years, It is very difficult to imagine a world where capitalism does not exist. We are told in some texts that it is more likely for the average person to imagine an end-of-the-world apocalyptic scenario than it is for people to imagine that capitalism can and will come to an end. But capitalism, just like colonialism although still continuing, are only chapters in the book. Feudalism was only a chapter in the book. Absolutism was only a chapter in the book. And although it might seem impossible, and although it might seem unlikely, capitalism, imperialism, and colonialism will only be a chapter in the book. Now, how do we make that so? By ideology. We have a given ideology within our society today. That is, again, white 
is right. But more than that, the United States is right. Because when the United States attacks China, when the United States attacks Venezuela and Bolivia, when the United States attacks Cuba, and all these countries wherein people are starving, people are without food, without proper housing, without any kind of stable living, and we send bombs, we send soldiers, we send terror, we send our state-sanctioned terrorists to fix the problem. And what's our ideology about that? That the world should thank us because the United States is going around spreading democracy. But that democracy looks a whole lot like genocide. That democracy looks a whole lot like imperialism. Looks a whole lot like resource extraction. And it looks a whole lot like drug exchange, sex trade. And many other things that we are well aware of, but we do nothing to stop. Ideology develops out of the environment which we exist in, but that environment is perpetuated, as we were discussing, because people's ideas come from that environment. And so, if those people are not forced therein to combat those ideas... If people are not forced to question their own ideas, and if people are given power to act on those ideas, if nobody's going to stop them, they're going to keep doing the same shit that they were doing before, that they said they don't like, but now isn't it so convenient that they're doing it themselves? Joe Biden. Kamala Harris. It's not some individual's job to change or to form ideology. It is not some individual's fault that colonialism, capitalism, and imperialism have come to the fore and still exist and control much of the world today. It is not some individual's fault that these things need to be changed. It is not our president's fault. It is not our House of Representatives' fault. It is all of their faults, combined, there's not a single person in Washington, D.C. who walks out of that, those halls of power without blood on their hands. There's not a single capitalist, corporatist, elitist who walks away from any business transaction without blood on their hands because it is all ideology. And the ideology is the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and that's okay. Oppression is human nature and that's okay racism sexism transphobia homophobia islamophobia are all human nature and that's okay maybe they should be more like us and isn't it funny who they want these people all over the world to mirror themselves after You know, Donald Trump, of course, was quoted as calling Mexicans a bunch of rapists and drug dealers. But don't you know, that's really what his lineage was itself. So maybe he was just projecting. You have also the same kind of ideology within our government structure. We don't want people to abuse power. We are afraid of corruption. We want democracy. And yet, what do we do? The opposite of all of that. And we tell people, you should look up to George Washington, who was the richest man in the country at the time, who owned slaves, who was a land surveyor, who took land from indigenous people, who murdered men, women, and children, who raped and enslaved men, women, and children. They want you to look up to uh, Thomas Jefferson. They want you to look up to Andrew Johnson. They want you to look up to these murderers, to these rapists, to these settler colonialists and oppressors. And we cannot do that anymore. Ideology is formed out of an environment. But an environment is formed by the people within it. If at a given point you have an environment 
that is taken over by Nazis, you know that that environment will create a certain ideology. Now, if that geographical area or environment was overrun by Soviet soldiers, Nazis were killed and put in jail and and taken away where they belonged, you might see a different environment. And because you see a different environment, you might see different ideology develop. It's a difficult discussion because a majority of us have only lived within a certain context. A majority of us have only lived in one place at one time. That's kind of what human life is like. And so the problem becomes trying to imagine that something like that could change. Trying to imagine that capitalism could end. Trying to imagine that the colonial rule by Europe and America, as we call it, over the rest of the world could ever come to a close. And because it's so difficult for us to imagine this, we do nothing to create this. But that, of course, as we were discussing before, is precisely how environments and therein ideologies change by action. It is not done by some simple uh, hope or prayer or vote. It is done by action. You cannot end police brutality by protesting the police and asking them to stop. You cannot end the mass taxation of the poor masses by asking those who just passed that tax bill to pass a different one. You can't ask for slavery to end by asking the slave owners to stop owning slaves. You have to take action. All of these have clear examples. And all of them are being ignored today. So what are we doing about it? How are we going to affect this environment? How are we going to affect this ideology and create a new hegemonic trend? What is hegemony? This idea of hegemony is often new to folks, but I think that it's something that we can really begin to understand by just a simple dialogue. Um, If you want to look into it more, you should look up Antonio Gramsci. Um, But the theory of hegemony is just basically a theory of figuring out how does, you know, a ruling class, because the ruling class is quite often the minority within a given society. How does the ruling class come to a place where its own beliefs, its own ideals, its own religions and economic practices become the guiding force of the society which they live in? How does a given belief system, how does a given ideology become dominant in an area? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The theory of hegemony, to me, probably the first time I listened to it, seemed a little too simplistic. And I'm going to be honest and say that I don't think I have done enough studying to give a full and fantastic explanation of hegemony. But I can definitely say for certain that I understand hegemony and ideology as being the guiding forces to a given society. We already discussed this. And we also know that there is no society without a given ideology. I believe it is Marx, or one of them, who says that any society's given ideology is that of its own bourgeoisie. And now that's a paraphrase there, but I think we can understand what I mean by that. It's not going to be the poor working class people who nobody listens to, who nobody helps, who nobody feeds, who nobody takes care of, who they're going to let decide, you know, what the ideology of their society is going to be. Um, That just seems, you know, illogical. But what's even more illogical is the fact that so few people, in the sense of a ruling class, can have 
such ideological domination over such a majority. And this is done through a lot of different means, but to have this discussion, we talk about this idea of force. Now, force can be violent and physical. Force can be violent and mental. Force can be violent and emotional. And force can be all three. You know, if you, as a person, were to see your child stolen from you and be told that the only way that you and the rest of your family is to survive is if you let us come in here and take your children, take any of your crops that we decide we want, start proms with whoever we want to start proms with, you know, Take women, take children, take animals, take, take, you know, things that do not belong to us. And we're going to make them ours. And if you do anything to stop us, we're going to kill you. We are going to kill your children. We are going to kill your family. We're going to destroy the land you live on. We're going to burn your houses down. And we're going to take some of you as slaves while we do it. There's probably some force there that would convince you to do what this person pleases. Now, what if I told you instead that someone were to walk up and say, excuse me, but I just wanted to let you know that unless you believe in this God, you will be going to hell. And because you'll be going to hell, you will suffer a torturous life burning uh, uh, in, in absolute, you know, uh, pain for the rest of eternity. Um, if you are someone who is hurting, if you are someone who is, you know, in a place where you can be easily manipulated for whatever emotional reasons, that's going to feel equally as forceful to some extent as a gun directly pointed at your child's face. Now, another sense of force is starvation, houselessness, drug abuse, and a hope to get out of that reality. So in the 70s and 80s, a lot of people wanted to say that now all of a sudden... Well, black folks are done protesting. Black Panther Party was kind of slowing down to some extent. It was not as openly attacking and going after the, the powers that be because they saw what danger it put them and their, their comrades in. And so a lot of folks started entering the job field. They started, you know, as, as America, quote-unquote, became more corporatized, became more monetized and capitalized. You saw a lot of different groups of people who we might call, quote-unquote, minorities, who began joining the job field, who began entering into college, who began seeking out alternate realities. And a lot of these people were successful. They, uh, you know, we have a lot of incredibly talented, incredibly well-studied, powerful people of color, women, trans folk, two-spirits, non-binary and non-gender conforming folks, all up in high places. A lot of them have fantastic jobs. A lot of them are doing very well. However, what we know today is that it is not enough for each one of us individually to try to do good. And I mean that as in to try to do well economically and socially. To try to make it off within the capitalist world. Because at the end of the day, we're competing with each other. And when we compete with each other, we take jobs from children, or we take jobs from parents who have children they need to feed. When we compete with one another, we end up in positions 
and take in money that we should not need in a world so abundant with food, with medicine, and with people willing and able to create more. When we compete with each other, we further develop that hegemony. We further perpetuate that ideology of capitalism, of competition, of the free market, of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, of work hard enough and you'll get your little piece of land with your little your little driveway and your two cars in, in the driveway and your kids running around on the you know 24-hour watered grass right down the street from the reds where they don't have running water. You see, we don't get the luxury, being a part of the working class, to live like this. We were not chosen. Get over it. Your job as a human being should not be to work your fucking ass off for 50 to 60 hours a week so that you can make a little bit more money than the average person, be able to do a little bit more with your life than the average person because guess what you're still going to be drowning in debt you're still never going to be as rich as these motherfuckers up top and no matter how rich you get they'll buy you out they'll tank your business they'll sink it right into the ground Marlboro right now is trying to sink Newport by passing a menthol bill they'll fuck you They will completely, I don't care if it's a job you've worked for 30 years, I don't care if it's a business you started yourself and now you're just on the decision-making board. We have allowed a pervasive and destructive ideology to come into our minds and tell us that we are each other's enemy. You are not my enemy. I am not your enemy. Black people are not my enemy. Brown people are not my enemy. Indigenous people are not my enemy. Women, two-spirits, gender non-conforming folks, non-binary folks, and transgender people are not my enemy. They are human beings just like me. And the only reason why anyone might believe that they are their enemy is because they have been made to believe that that is ideology. That is hegemony. And that is brainwashing. We are meant to compete with one another because as long as we hate one another, we're never going to get together and do something about the society we live in. As long as we hate one another, we will never get together and solve our own problems. We will never have black, white, brown, indigenous people, as well as others, in a room discussing how to end racism. As long as we keep fighting with each other, we will never have each member from different genders, from different uh, uh, sexes, from, from different identities, all coming together and discussing how do we create a society where it is not here is the number one sexuality, gender, or identity, and everybody else fall in line. How do we create a society that is, we are all equal? Many people have done it before us. Many people have come together and built these societies that we are talking about today, or at least tried to. And I think a lot of us forget what it is that actually stops them. We like to say socialism always fails. Socialism will never succeed. But that is because socialism is made to fail. That is because socialism is fought and combated and raged against and warred against. Socialists are murdered. Socialists are sent to prison. Socialists are exiled from our country. And socialists are told that they are crazy. You know what's crazy? Thinking that capitalism would ever work. You know what's even crazier? You thinking that capitalism would ever work. Because guess what? This land was not made for you and me. This land is not even ours. To think of the ridiculousness 
that one might have to uh, uh, attribute to an action such as going into a country wherein hundreds of millions of people exist and have existed for thousands of years, putting on your stupid little conquistador hat, riding on your little stupid horse, and saying, this is my land. Something equally as ridiculous as that is capitalism. The logic behind both of these things is null and void. It's non-existent. It isn't there. There is no logic behind capitalism other than short-term gain, continuous growth, and destruction. There is no logic to white supremacism and colonialism except for self-benefit, continuous growth, and destruction. There is no benefit from imperialism except for self-sustainability, destruction, oppression, resource extraction, and wealth. But these things are never enough to benefit the whole. They will never be enough for everyone because we aren't developing them for everyone. Socialism is necessary because it takes what exists in the world that we have today and it puts it in the hands of the people who live in that world today. We create, we build the society we live in. We produce every good that we consume. We work at our jobs while we don't get paid enough. We work our asses off so that our bosses can make millions, millions on average. The average CEO makes up to four to 500 times more than the average day laborer. But those motherfuckers are never in the office. Those motherfuckers are never in the stores. Those motherfuckers are never getting screamed at by customers. Those people are not suffering. We are. And even if we are suffering different than others, we are all suffering and we have to see that. We have to come together and put down our opposition, put down our disdain for one another, and put down our warring with one another, and point our guns together at the enemy. If you are still listening to this, I just want to say thank you very much. Uh, again, this has been In Defense of Liberation. If you want to go ahead and find me, you can find me on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at In Defense of Liberation. You can reach out to me there, or if you would prefer to reach out to me in another place, you can reach out to me at um, In Defense of Liberation at gmail.com. You can also find me and my blog at For Liberation, no caps, no spaces dot wix site w-i-x-s-i-t-e dot com forward slash website and again folks i just want to thank you for listening i hope everybody's staying well and staying safe um and until next time uh stay revolutionary uh stay in love with one another uh stay fighting um uh, and remember that the world we live in is shit but it's not our fault. But it will be our fault if it doesn't get better. We have to act, and we can't just sit here and talk. That time is over. The time for talk is over. We need to be in the streets, we need to be organizing, and we need to be working on changing the reality we live in. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, my name is Josh, and until next time, uh, stay safe. Bye.